this morning, um, or you prefer to follow along on your Bible app on your phone, go ahead and turn to John 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 uh, this morning. Our text is going to be up on the screen as well, so you can check it out there. All right, so stained glass has always impressed me. The Presbyterian church that I, that I grew up in had five or six tall windows that ran down the sides of the sanctuary. And all of these windows were filled with stained glass images of, of Jesus' life. One window uh, showed his birth, another showed his baptism, another his death and the resurrection and the ascension. And I remember sitting in church as a kid trying my best to pay attention to what was going on. But the sun began to shine through these windows in the sanctuary, and my ADD began to kick in, and my focus was gone. Um, my eyes were immediately drawn towards these stained glass mosaics. Now, students, we, we are in a room with center block walls, so Abel, you are without excuse. All right? Better pay attention. All right, so five minutes or so would go by, and I would just stare at all of the intricate details of one particular picture. I'd look at all the individual colors, the different textures, and I'd look at all the different shapes and the different sizes, and then I'd zoom out to see how each one of these uniquely formed and uniquely colored pieces of glass, when, when put together, painted a large picture that was so detailed and so beautiful. And every time, I was left amazed. I always wondered, like, how in the world did somebody make this? How did, did someone put all of this together and draw such an awesome picture using all of these different pieces of glass? And it was, it was crazy. It blew my mind. And then my mom would, would slap me and say, pay attention. Um, so the next 21 weeks, as, as Mark said, we're going to be making our way through the Gospel of John. Now, we're not going to cover the entire book of John. If we did, we would be in the Gospel of John much longer than 20 week, 21 weeks. But instead, we're going to pick a small passage out of each chapter of John to discuss and study as a church each week. And our hopes as a pastoral staff is this is that each one of these smaller passages would serve as an individual piece of stained glass. That we would look at and dive into each of these smaller passages of Scripture and see a certain truth or a, a certain aspect about Jesus that we can hold on to. And at the end of our series, having a good understanding of all of these smaller passages, that we'll be able to put all of these pieces of stained glass together, all of these truths about Jesus together. And we'll step back to see the larger picture. We'll step back to stand in awe of who Jesus is. So in our culture today, there's a lot of different opinions circulating around about who Jesus is. Some people say that he was just a man, no different than, than you and me. Others will take that up a step to say this, then he was a good guy. He was selfless in serving others. He showed love to all. But probably the most popular opinion about Jesus today is that he was simply a great moral teacher. Man, his messages and his teachings, they were awesome. They inspired so many other people to, to live upright and moral lifestyles. However, still others would argue that Jesus is a prophet. Or that, that, yes, he was the Son of God, but so was Gandhi. So was Muhammad. So was Buddha. 
And yet others believe that Jesus is their Savior and Lord. And that through Him and His sacrifice on the cross, they receive eternal life. While there's many different opinions about who Jesus is, know that there's only one right answer. There is only one right answer. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what everyone else thinks about Jesus or what they say about Him. What matters is this. Who do you say that He is? Who do you say that He is? And does your answer line up with the truth? Not your friends, not your family, not your church, not myself, Pastor Mark, Pastor Shay, as your pastors can answer this question for you. You've got to answer it yourself. And, and how you answer that question, who you know and believe Jesus to be, will affect the rest of your life for all eternity. For all of eternity. So I'd say that that is a pretty important question to answer. Unfortunately, though, many people don't take this all-important question seriously. We tend to be far more concerned about our lawns and flower beds. We tend to be so much more concerned um, about the fact that the meat we're eating is farm-raised and grass-fed and organic than we are about answering this question of who Jesus is intending to the own condition of our souls. So I want to challenge you as we go throughout this Jesus Is series to take this question seriously. Make up your mind, make it your goal to find the truth of who Jesus is as revealed in Scripture so that you might wholeheartedly believe who He is and know with 100% certainty that your answer is right, that your answer is going to pay off in eternity. For some of you, I believe that as you take this question seriously, the Holy Spirit is going to open your eyes to, to see the beauty of Christ and the wonder of the gospel. You're going to fall in love with Jesus, leading you to place your faith in Him for the first time. And I can't wait to see God do that. But many of you here this morning are asking, Austin, why in the world do I need to take this question seriously? I've already answered it. I've discovered who Jesus is. It happened 30 years ago when I placed my faith in Him. I'm sure of my salvation. I'm sure of my eternal life. And to you, I would, I would say a few things. First, the Christian life is not just a one-time decision. It's something that you wake up each and every day and decide to believe and live, or else you're not going to remain faithful. If you don't make an everyday decision to believe in, in Jesus and follow Him, you're not going to make it to the end. You won't. But secondly, I want you to realize that there is more of Jesus to discover. Knowing Jesus is like trying to swim to the bottom of a bottomless ocean. You will never get to that point when you can truly say, man, I know everything that there is to know about Jesus. It's impossible. There is always more to know. There is always more to discover. And I believe that as you take this question seriously in your life and decide who Jesus is, yes, you're going to learn more about Jesus, but this beautiful thing is going to happen. As you learn more about Jesus, you're going to begin to love Him more. You're going to begin to enjoy Him more, which is going to make you live and serve Him even more than you are right now. So this morning, let's make up our minds that we're going to take this question seriously. This morning, let's declare as a church that, that we want to know more of who Jesus is. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, I want to know. 
All right, so now that we've covered where we're going in the next 21 weeks, let's jump into our passage. 1 John chapter 1, um, verses 1 through 14, but first let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would speak through your word to us this morning. Father, we ask that your spirit would fall on this place, would open up our eyes to see the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the gospel. Change us. It's in your son's name we pray, and everybody said... Amen. All right, so verses 1 and 2 begin by saying this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So the Gospel of John opens up with a phrase that is very very familiar. In the beginning. Now, where have we, we heard this phrase before? Genesis, right? Genesis 1-1, the very first verse in the Bible, we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What an awesome verse. But John wants to take us back further than that, before the heavens and the earth were created. What was there? What was, what was it like? What was going on? Have you ever wondered that? I'm, I know I have. Genesis 1 verse 2 tells us this. It says that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So let me paraphrase this for you because it's kind of difficult um, to understand. Before God began to speak things into existence... There was nothing. There was no time, no space, no matter. There was simply darkness and and emptiness. But God was there. And in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 we read that the Holy Spirit was there too. And now in John chapter 1 verse 1 we read that the Word was there too with God. According to John, these three have always existed. They were never created. They have always been. And the, the picture that we see here is that these three, I mean, they're having a blast just hanging out with each other. Their relationship is, is one of love and joy, so they're enjoying each other's presence. They are delighting in each other's company. And because of that, because of this life-giving relationship, they lack nothing. All right, now many of you would say, all right, awesome, I'm tracking with you so far. I, I got this. I can pretty much understand and wrap my mind around everything that you've said. I'll tell you, enjoy that moment because it's about to get really confusing. John says this next. He says, in the beginning, yes, the Word was with God. Okay, we've got that. But he goes on to say this. The Word was God. The Word was that. Let me unpack this. John tells us here that while these three, God, the Word, the Holy Spirit, are all uniquely their own persons, that each one of them are fully God, yet there is only one God. I'll I'll read that again because some of you are like, uh, my head hurts. All right, John tells us that while these three persons, God, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, are all uniquely their own persons, that each one of them is fully God, but yet there is only one God. We call this doctrine the Trinity. Now, for those of y'all that don't know, I've got a three-year-old little boy named Caleb and a little girl. It's one and a half. Her name is Nora, and I love them to death. Because I love them so much, I I figured that this year I was going to start the Christmas season off with a bang. So the week after Thanksgiving, I brought home this seven-and-a-half-foot-tall inflatable polar bear that's made to decorate your yard, except I set it up in our living room. Dad goals, right? So... Like, it, it really is awesome. Like, it takes up our whole living room. It's amazing. Caleb named him Johnny, like, instantly. I don't know where that came from. Well, the fan on Johnny 
is so loud that literally you have to yell at each other in the house to hear what each other is saying. Like, it's really, really annoying. So, we only inflate Johnny at certain times of the day. The rest of the day, he just sits all deflated on the floor. It's really sad. So, one of the first days that that Johnny was in our house, I was busy doing something, and Caleb had Johnny's plug in his hand. And he was getting ready to put that plug in the electrical outlet after I had already told him not to do so. So I immediately stopped what I was doing. I started yelling as I was like running over him, like waving, waving my hands at him. But that didn't stop him. He continued to try to work that plug into the outlet. And I, I got over to him and, and pulled the plug out of his hand and popped his hand. And immediately he busted into tears. He thought his, his world was, was falling apart. So I held him for a minute and, and comforted him. And then as I, I could tell that he was settling down, I sat on the floor with him. And I put him in my lap and I said, buddy, daddy told you not to play with that. Remember? And he was like, yeah. And I said, man, that outlet could really hurt you. Please don't play with that, okay? And he said, yes, sir. So then I plugged Johnny uh, in for him, and he, like, started, like, punching him and all that stuff. It was fun. You see, there are certain things that three-year-olds just don't understand. Caleb didn't understand that that electrical outlet could kill him. He probably still doesn't understand even now, but he's listening to me. He's obeying me because he trusts and knows that I love him as his dad. But I, on the other hand, as an adult, as an almost 30-year-old, know the danger of electricity. It's it's not a hard concept for us to grasp. Am I right? You touch this and you die. It's, It's that simple. So don't do it. Follow this thought with me here. If there's a difference between a three-year-old's understanding and a 30-year-old's, almost 30-year-old's understanding, there is certainly an infinitely greater difference between the understanding of man and the full knowledge of God. There there are going to be some things about God that we cannot and will not understand because we are finite and God is infinite. And the the Trinity is one of those things. Theologians have tried and tried and tried to explain the Trinity, how God, the Word, the Holy Spirit are all three different and unique persons, but are all fully God, yet they're one God at the same time. Yet every explanation falls short in some way. But check this out. Just because you don't understand, just because you can't grasp the truth in your mind, doesn't mean that it's not true. It's true because the Bible says so. Therefore, we should believe it with conviction. We should believe it with certainty, even though we can't make sense of it. And at the end of the day, can we not rejoice that we can't explain or even understand everything about God? Because a God that we can fully understand would be a God that is less than ourselves. Would be a God that is less than ourselves. Alright, so John was not trying to launch us into a deep debate here about the Trinity. He was not trying to do that. I don't want us to get sidetracked. He simply wanted us to know this, that the Word is eternal, that the Word is God and is divine. John goes on to tell us in verse 3 that all things were made through Him, talking about the Word, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So not only was this Word with God 
at creation and, and present with God at creation, but we see here that he was also active in creation. This word is, is the creator. All things were made by and through him. He worked to create everything that we know from the farthest star in the universe to the smallest, most annoying insect here on earth. He designed and created it all by his power, all by his will. Now, I've wondered, and maybe you have as well, if the Godhead, if God, the Holy Spirit, and the Word, man, if they really were happy and content just hanging out with each other and being in each other's presence, if they didn't need anything because their relationship with each other was so loving and joyful and fulfilling, why then did they create the world? Why did they create the world? Have you ever wondered that? I, I know I have. Jonathan Edwards argues that God created the world not because he was lacking in any area or because he was in need of something that he didn't have, but because he wanted to share this life-giving relationship. He wanted to, to share this relationship that he had within the Trinity with others. God wanted others to know the fullness of joy that is in his presence. He wanted others to experience the never-ending pleasures that are at his right hand. He wanted us to see the greatness of his goodness. So as an act of love, he created the world that we might come to know who he is and enjoy him. And it's, it's no surprise then, given this context, that when God began to make, he spoke and said that everything was good because everything was designed and created to show off his greatness and his goodness. Let's fast forward to today. In 2018, Suicide bombers take the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, at a time. Yet today, in 2018, people are so greedy for money that they will lower their morals to the point that they will sell a child into slavery. Yet today, in 2018, pornography is one of the business, biggest moneymakers in the world. Yet today, in 2018, divorce wreaks havoc on our families. Today, family members are diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Today, that friend is taken from us far too soon because somebody texting and driving runs a red light. It, it doesn't take long for us to see that the world that we live in is not good as it once was. That is the one thing that almost everyone can agree on. We, can, we can't seem to agree on which college team is best, Carolina, uh, but people will readily admit that there's something wrong with the world. Although they may not be able to explain or pinpoint exactly what that is, they know that things weren't supposed to be this way. Things were supposed to be different. So what happened? What happened to this good world that, that God made the world that was supposed to lead us to endless joy and never-ending blessing in God. Sin happened. Sin happened. God created this good world, and He made man the prize of His creation. And in making man the prize of creation, God placed him in the center of this beautiful garden named Eden, where man was supposed to rule and reflect God. And Genesis tells us that this garden was awesome, not simply because it was amazing and lush and, and beautiful, but because God was there. God's presence was constantly with them. There in the garden, man was able to commune and fellowship with God directly and enjoy life with Him. And, and everything was perfect. And they only had one rule. God said this, hey guys, you see that tree over there? And they're like, mm-hmm, 
God said, hey, don't eat from, from that tree. Because if you do, you're going to die. They're like, all right. Sounds simple enough. But as we know, pride would one day enter their hearts and lead them to eat from that tree. And in that moment, fear, sadness, pain, wickedness, disease entered the world. And just as God promised, so did death. Man would would not live forever on earth as God had intended. One day, man would experience physical death and return to the dust that he came from. And man would not only be subject to mere physical death, but to spiritual death as well. Man who was once more uh, alive and free than he could ever imagine in the presence of God would now be completely ruled and controlled by sin. And because of this pervasive sinfulness of their hearts, they would no longer be able to see God's glory. They would no longer be able to hear God's voice. They would no longer be able to stand in God's holy presence. And instead of being objects of God's affection as they once were, because of man's disobedience and rebellion, they would now be objects of God's righteous wrath, destined to experience judgment for the rest of eternity. Now, I hate to break the news to you this morning. This isn't just Adam and Eve's story. This is our story. Everybody turn to your neighbor and tell them, this is my story. All right, so Romans 3, it tells us that we all have sinned. That we all have turned our backs on God. We have all disobeyed God's life-giving commands for our lives only to do what is right in our own eyes. Only to do what pleases us. Isaiah tells us that we are all like sheep that have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 3. He says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And just when you thought that it couldn't get any more depressing than that, because that's a, a pretty sad verdict there, there's this one little fact. The fact that there is nothing that you or I can do in our own power or strength to save ourselves. There is nothing that we can do in our own ability to make things right with God, because we're the ones that got ourselves into this mess. We can't do anything to get ourselves out of it. So we see that in our natural fallen state, we are in a very dark, desperate, hopeless situation, merely awaiting the day when we will stand before God and He will judge us in His wrath because of our sin. Yet, in God's love and in God's grace, God didn't say, Man, forget mankind and and completely cast them aside but instead he sent prophets to them he sent prophets to his people israel to show them the way and lead them back to god even if he knew that man needed a more of a higher prophet something greater than a prophet to restore what had been broken by the fall now how many of y'all watch netflix by show of hands all right for those of y'all that did not raise your hands you need to get a netflix subscription because it's awesome all right, so I've got a Netflix rule that I live by. I will not watch a show on Netflix until every single season of that show has been uploaded to Netflix. And here's why. I hate getting sucked into 
a show. You're getting all caught up in the plot. You know, the character development is so good. You feel like you're really getting to know the characters as you watch the show. And then you're just chilling on your couch one day and you're like, hey, there's a lot of big things going on in this episode. Like, how are they going to keep this this going at, at this rate? You're like, wait a second. This is the season finale. And once the episode ends, you realize, yes, it was the season finale. And then you go cry in the corner. Because that feeling of being left hanging in the air is rough. And, and the hardest part about getting attached to a show on Netflix that is still airing on TV is no doubt the weight that follows once you finish that season finale. No doubt the hardest part is the silence and the void that you have to go through and endure for a whole year until the next season is finally aired on Netflix, and then you can pick things back up where they left off and find out what happens. It's rough. So John's audience here in the Gospel of John were kind of going through the same thing. For as long as Israel could remember, God had sent prophets and messengers to communicate with them, as we said a minute ago. But as of late, these prophets started pointing towards the coming of a Messiah. The, the one who would make things right between God and man. The one who would make a way and establish salvation once and for all among the people of God. And to this Messiah's coming, Israel was excited. They were expectant. And they thought that he was going to come any day now. But all of a sudden, everything went dark. God stopped speaking. So the prophets stopped proclaiming. And, and just like that, God's plan seemed to halt, and, and everything went silent. No one heard from God for 400 years. It's a long time. 400 years. And I uh, imagine that Israel was filled with despair. They're com- confused about what's going on. And I imagine there were a, a lot of them asking the same question, questions that some of you are asking this morning. God, where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you speaking to me? If you are, why can't I hear your voice? Do you not care about what I'm going through? Do you not love me anymore? Is my future just hopeless to you? But out of the darkness, when it felt like the night was never going to lift, God came through more so than He ever had before, and He shined a bright light as verse 3 tells us, showing us that he had not forgotten after all. When it felt like the silence was never going to end, John tells us in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, the eternal divine Creator, as we've said up to this point, became flesh. This Word became a man just like you and me. He put on skin and clothed himself in humanity and he stepped down into the very creation that he had made to dwell and to live among us. And John goes on to tell us more of who this Word is. In verse 14 he continues as he writes that we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. There it is. The, the Word is none other than the one and the only precious Son of God, who we know to be Jesus. 
Man, I, I love Christmas for, for so many reasons. Decorating the Christmas tree is always fun. Watching the best Christmas movie, Elf, on repeat is always a highlight. Spending time with family, like the list goes on and on and on. I want to hear from you all this morning. On the count of three, I'm going to give you guys the opportunity to tell me what your favorite thing is about Christmas, all right? So go ahead and get it in your mind, all right? One, two, three. And y'all really know how to celebrate. I want to come spend Christmas over at y'all's house. All right, so one thing that I love about Christmas, there's so many things, is that it reminds me of my weakness, It reminds me of my helplessness. You know, we get so caught up in our careers. We get caught up in making a name for ourselves. And as we begin to succeed in these areas, or we begin to accumulate all of this nice stuff, we begin to think to ourselves, man, I'm I'm pretty awesome. Like, I'm doing a great job of managing my life. I've got everything under control. And this is deceiving This is deceiving because while we may be able to thrive and succeed in all of these different areas of life, Christmas is a blatant reminder that I'm helpless and I'm completely insufficient in the area where it really matters. I'm absolutely helpless in my own strength to make things right with God. I could never reconcile things with Him. If it were up to me, I would be forever at odds with Him. There, there is no way that I could ever get into heaven to be in His presence on my own. Instead, God had to take action. Instead, God had to intervene. Instead, God had to make a way and actually had to come to us. Paul David Tripp, an author and pastor, he says that one of the best ways to celebrate Christmas is to remind yourself of your helplessness before God. Because until you see the seriousness of your sin and the helpless predicament that you were left in because of it, you're not going to see and celebrate the good news of Jesus' birth. I love how he said to flesh this out on a practical level. He said that one of the best ways to do this is to sit down with somebody, a spouse or a close friend, and confess to them some specific ways that you're weak and still in need of Jesus in your life. Talk about those areas where you're still struggling with sin and you need God's grace and you need His strength. Talk about those, those areas of your life where you still need God's provision. So that as you do this, you can snap out of your, your pride and earthly success to realize that you don't have it all together. But instead, you're in desperate need of Jesus You're in desperate need of a Savior each and every moment of each and every day. Some awesome advice, and I I challenge you guys to do that this coming week so that you can get the most out of Christmas this year and experience the joy that we have as Christians this holiday season. So wouldn't you think, though, those people that realize their helplessness, their, their dark and desperate situation before God because of their sin and rebellion against Him, wouldn't you think that they would rejoice At the coming of Jesus? I I would think so. You'd think that man would celebrate because God had come to make amends. God had come to make a way and to deal with their sin by sending his own son to do so. John tells us this, though, in verses 10 and 11. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. All right, so I've got this handy little LED light here. Watch out because it's bright, all right? 
right, so it's a nice little LED battery-powered light. You'll see you can do some pretty cool, like, interpretive dance moves up here with it. Makes everything look really awesome. So if, if I turn this light on as I just did, I don't have to tell you guys that it's on, do I? Like, it, it's pretty obvious. So it's a no-brainer. Like, I'd be stating the obvious if I said, oh, hey, this, this light is on, right? It's, it's common sense. So I'm going to... Okay, I'm going to leave that right there. All right, that's not going to work. Those things are not metal. How crazy. All right, so it's got a magnet on the bottom. That's why I said that. We'll leave it right there. All right, so it's here in our text that we see the sad reality of the fall. Jesus, the true light, as John says, stepped into the darkness. He came into the world, but because of the depth of our sin and His grip on our lives, people didn't see the light. They didn't recognize Him. They were blind to see the light that God had shown to the world through His Son. So they rejected Him. They wanted nothing to do with Him to the point that they nailed Him to a cross and killed Him. But none of this caught God by surprise. Even in this rejection, through the cross, we see that that was God's plan A. That was God's sovereign and glorious plan at work. And it was here that we see God worked an even greater miracle than He did in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. As, as Jesus hung on the cross, God the Father placed all of our sins, everything wrong that we had ever done, on Him. And, and made His own Son bear the weight of our shame. Even though Jesus was sinless and perfect and had obeyed God in every way and did not deserve it. And God did this so that then God could pour out the fullness of His wrath and unleash the fullness of His righteous anger that was reserved for our sin on Jesus. And, and in that moment, the Bible actually tell us, tells us that God forsook his son. We don't use that word a lot, but here's what it means. God completely abandoned Jesus. God finished his son on the cross and, and left him to die. He rejected and turned his back on Jesus when we should have been the ones that were rejected and, and turned on. We were the ones at fault. And then we see from the cross in agony, Jesus cried out these three words. It is finished. And he breathed his last breath and died. Let, this, let the reality of this sink in. Jesus, who we've said is the eternal one. He has always existed. Jesus, who we've said is divine, the Lord of glory, God himself. Jesus, God's only precious son in the flesh, died. The light of the world put out. Put out. Isn't that a crazy reality? It, it seemed in that moment that man had prevailed, that darkness had overcome, that Satan was victorious, that he had, had won. But John writes this in verse 5 of chapter 1. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What began in the manger, what was finished on the cross, was proven at the resurrection. Three days later, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus rose up from the dead and came back to life because all of our sin, no matter how messed up, how dark, how wicked it may have been, none of that was strong enough to keep Jesus in that grave. 
He was greater and more powerful still. Jesus had successfully taken in and absorbed the fullness of God's wrath towards our sin on the cross. Jesus had miraculously delivered us from our sin by taking our sin upon Himself, by dying in our place as we deserved. Yet that wasn't enough to hold Him down. Darkness had schemed. Darkness had had plotted. Darkness had done everything it could. But it still failed. The light would continue to shine. The light had over come. Jesus had prevailed. Ben, if you guys would go ahead and come up. What John tells us next in, in verse 12 is pure gold. It's, it's pure gold here. He says that while many reject Jesus and did not receive Him, check out what he says, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. In our culture, as we've already said, there are so many different opinions and views about who Jesus is. I'll tell you this morning, there are just as many different opinions and views about what it means to be a follower of Christ, especially in the Bible Belt culture that we live in. But here's, here's what I see more times than not. So many people want to believe they, they want to live a life that honors God and that glorifies Him. So they come to church on, on Sundays to sit through a sermon. They pray before all of their meals because in their minds, that's the bare minimum that they think they have to do to slide their way into heaven. But on the other hand, working at, at the same time, they also want to live for the world. They, they also want to have worldly success and worldly acclaim. They want to indulge in worldly things. So they seem to take a stand for both sides. It's interesting here in our text, though, John tells us that you either believe or you don't. You either receive or you reject. Tim Keller says this, you either kill Jesus or you crown Jesus. There's, there's no gray area in between. There's no middle ground here. So what does it mean to be a true follower of Christ? What does it mean to believe as John says? We throw this word around so much. We say stuff like, I believe it's going to snow this weekend. I hope not. I believe that I put the remote over there. I, I believe I, I took the trash down to the street. And but because of this, we often don't know what it means to believe in Jesus. The New Testament word for believe translates to trust. And it's not just talking about a correct understanding of who Jesus is in our mind, where you know all the facts and the knowledge about Jesus, although that's certainly a part of it. Our belief as, as Christians is more than that. When, when we believe in Jesus for our salvation, yes, we know the truth of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, but we take it the next step further and actually stake our lives on it. We surrender our hearts and every part of our lives to Him. We lay the entirety of our lives, all that we are, all that we have, at the foot of the cross. We take a blank check and sign our name at the bottom and say, Jesus, fill in the details no matter what it costs, as long as you make much of your name through me. That's the faith 
that we're called to have. That's the belief that John is talking about. None of this watered-down mess where the world doesn't recognize recognize us. None of this watered-down mess where we don't stand out. That belief is only deceiving yourself. If we would simply receive Jesus and believe in Him, as John says, John says that we become children of God. Children of God. See the scandal in this. Once sinners, once rebels, once objects of God's wrath and His enemies are now invited through faith to come and be a part of God's family. To be adopted as sons and daughters and have life because Jesus, God's Son, was put to death and slain for us. That is a scandal. And and now through faith in Christ, when God looks at us, He no longer sees our sin. He no longer sees our mistake or, or our regrets. Because instead, when He looks at you, He sees the spotless, righteous Christ that was slain for you. And He tells us the same thing that He would speak over His own Son in that moment when we stand before Him. He says, you are loved. You're precious. You're my son or you're my daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. And He invites us once again to enter into and partake of and enjoy His presence and and the blessings and the never-ending pleasures that come with it for all of eternity. For all of eternity. Just as He had longed for you to know and experience when He created the world. Jesus restores all things. He restores all things. I can't help but think that as we close this morning in the first week of our Jesus' series, that the Holy Spirit is miraculously opening people's eyes to see the light that is Christ for the first time. I can't help but think that as we've unpacked the gospel this morning, that the Holy Spirit is convicting people of their sin, is calling them out of darkness, and leading them to place their faith in Christ and believe. If that's you this morning, don't wait. Don't leave here this morning without doing business with God. Me, Mark, and Shay will be hanging out up here um, at the front of the stage as the service ends, and any one of us would love to help you as you make this decision to believe in Jesus. Let today be the day that you arrive through those back doors of the gym as a lost and hopeless sinner, yet leave as a child of God, saved by grace, all because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank you for looking at our helpless estate enslaved and controlled by our sin, destined to experience your wrath. And still you loved us. Still you decided to show us mercy. Still you decided to show us grace. So you sent your Son to bear the punishment that we rightly deserve. You put Him to death, your only Son, so that we might have life and be adopted as a son. Father, you are great. You are good. Let us bless your name. Let us sing your praises for all of eternity because you are worthy. Jesus, we thank you for enduring the cross. Holy Spirit, we thank you for living inside of us now as born-again believers. 
and for allowing us to enjoy your presence once again, allowing us to partake of the pleasures and the blessings that are only found in you. Father, be with us as we continue to worship. May your name and your name alone be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray and everybody said, Amen. If you guys will stand to your feet and worship with us during this last song.